I want to start our message off today with a little bit of counseling knowledge that I've picked up on over the last couple years of my schooling. I've been working towards a master's in marriage and family therapy, and I've taken tons of classes now that study human behavior, which by the way is giving me a lot of great sermon prep, right? A lot of sermon material. And I want to tap into a little bit of that this morning because one of the interesting things I've come to realize through all of my classes, I think, is this. Most of our struggles as people really just boils down to one simple fact, and that is we don't have what we want in life. I'm not talking about, you know, I want a new car or a nice house, something like that. It's just like a purpose in life. And that's, that's kind of simplistic, I get that, but as I further delve into this point, why do most people go to see a counselor? The reality is you are struggling with something in the present which is bringing you much discomforts. For example, you go to a counselor to work on your marriage because your current one is not going well. You go to a counselor to work on addictions because you don't like being trapped by something. You go to a counselor because you're depressed or anxious and you want relief from that. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're looking for a, a peaceful resolve from these solutions, and a counselor's job is to help you alleviate these problems. Not that we can take them from you, but we can ask some questions to say, are you maybe bringing these problems on yourself? Let me give you a quick example of how this looks, right? So you've got a map of the United States right here. You got, this is how I always like to look at it, but this is like the world's simplest definition, okay? I'd probably like get kicked out of school for this. So picture you're in Texas. That's the big yellow blob there in the bottom. And you want to go to California over here, but you made a right turn when you left Texas. Well, you're not going to get to California if you made a right turn. Am I right? Like, that's how simple it is. You go to see a counselor, and I'm really frustrated. I don't have what I want in life. And I'll say, well, then why didn't you take a left? Well, no, because if I just keep going this direction, maybe if I go faster, maybe if I go slower, I'll get there. No, you're just going to keep getting to the wrong direction equally. And what I mean by that is so oftentimes we'll ask people, and we're trained to do this, what are you doing that just further exacerbates the issues? What solutions have you tried to alleviate the problem? What story are you telling yourself that continues to feed into this problem? See, ultimately a counselor's job is to help you see that, that you're actually heading down a path of despair, but yet you're hoping to get a different result from it. See, counselors would go broke if most people would realize we just live the definition of insanity. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. It doesn't matter how fast or slow you go to New York, you're not going to end up in, in California. And so what happens is you're miserable because of the byproduct of, as a byproduct of what you're currently doing. But yet we keep doing it over and over again, and we don't like the results. And I think the reason is, ultimately, friends, we don't really know what we want out of life. And since we don't really know what we want, we just kind of leave life up to circumstances saying, I hope the end result is okay. And this all comes from, I think, one of the greatest issues that's always plagued humanity, which is what is our purpose in life? We wonder that. And since we really don't have an answer for that, we're going to struggle, of course. What's the purpose of life? If I don't have a purpose, I'm just going to kind of wander aimlessly. And a lot of us then make our life goal to be happy. Okay, define happiness. You can't define happiness because, again, it's just circumstances that we find pleasurable or that work out in our favor. That's not a goal to strive towards. So what it is with life and this insatiable frustration that we have 
It's the fact that we're just not fulfilled in this world. And I think that problem is even magnified for the Christian. As you heard Dana read from our, our scripture reading in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 14, it says, and as Christians we know this, for we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Which means we're actually never going to be happy because we know we're looking for, for, uh, for more. The book of Ecclesiastes even said God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that there's more and so our time in this earth is going to be frustrating. Which means we have no hope of ever being happy. Aren't you glad you came in this morning? Good news. I genuinely believe a true, fulfilled, and content life can be found. And with that, I invite you to please rise for the reading of our sermon text. Our sermon text this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, reading verses 6 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. This ends our scripture reading. You may be seated. Friends, what we have right there is the answer to everything highlighted previously. I get to be both counselor and pastor this morning as we go through this section to understand that 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 existential question about what is the meaning of life, it is all fulfilled for you here during your time on this earth when you understand the words that Paul was writing about. And the way he started it off here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, before you go think, oh, another giving sermon, we're going to start the new year off with the church already begging for more money, let me clarify, today's message is not about giving. I mean, yes, it's about giving, but it's not about, well, okay, you'll get it, I'll get to it, okay? Here's the deal, though. What this passage is ultimately trying to teach us, and everything we'll be building off of this, comes to this point, and that is how you do everything for the Lord is it reluctance or is it done joyfully? I think one of the classic examples of this is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Do you hear the differences in there? It said Cain presented some crops. Abel brought the best portions to the Lord. And you all know how much I love cliches, but I got to pull out that cliche here. Do you give what is right or do you give what is left? And I'm not talking about directions either, okay? Do you give what is right or do you give what's left? And so the second part of the section then goes on to describe Abel's gift. It said God found favor with Abel's gift. It was a good and pleasing gift. The Lord did not receive Cain's gift in such a fashion. And we know it made Cain angry, and if you know the story, out of a jealous disdain for his brother, Cain ends up murdering his brother. And so this first point that I'm trying to make with this text is this. The reluctant giver will always struggle with sin because the reluctant giver is unwilling to let go of this world. That's why Paul wrote here that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. When you are unwilling to part with your resources, well, then you're not pouring into anything that can produce any kind of return which is why God loves a cheerful giver and why Abel's gift was accepted. Because Abel knew everything that he had was the Lord's to begin with. He's only given back what was entrusted to him, which means that if you're going to do well with what's been entrusted to you, the Lord will continue to entrust you with more. It is amazing how many of our troubles in life come from this. We are unwilling to let go of the very things that are causing us misery. So often we'll cling to anger at somebody that's upset us as if that's going to solve the problem, and then when it doesn't, we just get more mad at them. Or you see it in religion all the time. We don't feel adequate to God, so we, you know, for God, so we try to become more religious, which only makes us feel more inadequate for God, and the spiral continues. You see it as we cling to our money, looking for money to bring us happiness and security, and yet the more we cling to it, the less happy and less secure we feel about it. So we try to clamp down on our money more and we try to work harder. And then through all of this, that day comes along, you're at the twilight of your life and you realize you wasted your best years never actually letting go of the very things that are imprisoning you. So the cure to this existential dilemma, friends, is found then in verse 8. There is a true cure for all of this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you hear that again? And God is able to make all the grace abound in you. That is the answer right there to the most important human dilemma that we face. One that, by the way, we can never solve. We have all sinned, which is a huge problem because it separated us from our creator. But what do you read there? God's abounding grace. He gives this great then, this grace, because this solves the problem that human nature can't. That is the separation between us and our creator. That separation has been mended because our creator is also our savior. This abounding grace of God sending his son Jesus into this world. Jesus' perfect life was there to pay the price of our broken lives. So the abounding grace conversation all starts right here. We have everything we need first off with God's grace. 
which means now that we can live a life that is free from the fear of hell and of condemnation if we have placed our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. You see, friends, God's grace is what saves you. And it is through faith that you receive that grace that God has given to us. No wonder Paul goes on to say, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. But back to verse 8 though, so getting into verse 8 again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now that you have this abounding grace, Paul is telling us you have the sufficiency for all things at all times. That is the foundation. Okay, the grace is the foundation. We've got God's grace covering everything for us. And so now with that, we are free from the fear that would always come from wondering if we are good enough for God, if we've truly earned God's salvation, because that's a pretty big thing hanging over us. If you know that there is a threat of eternal condemnation and the only way to get out of it is to work your way out of it, that's a life filled with a lot of reluctance and a lot of fear. Did I get enough money to starving children around the world? Did I serve at the banquet enough? Did I walk enough dogs to help with the Humane Society? All of these kinds of things will plague us. Did I do enough? And you're always going to feel unsatisfied because you know that you've never done enough, especially with what's at stake. But instead, this abounding grace that we have, this abounding grace says, no, you are now free just to love and serve God because of his great grace. That's now then what makes us this cheerful giver, not a reluctant giver. We're a cheerful giver because God is so awesome and because his awesomeness, we want to thank him for that abounding grace. Again, that's why Paul keeps saying, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. You see, friends, it's the mindset of true thanks that makes us a cheerful giver. Cain was that reluctant giver. And it's interesting, there's so many ways that we can actually reluctantly give. There's ways that we can give that's damaging and unproductive. Psychology Today, I was reading, talked about some wrong ways that people can give. They refer to these wrong ways of giving as a paradoxical form of narcissism. There's the martyr who gives only for the sake of being admired as a martyr. There's the compulsive giver who gives out of low self-esteem hoping to buy people's affection. There's the quid pro quo giver who is a transactional giver. I give so that I can get. And I want to quickly remind you, friends, I keep talking about giving. We're not talking about money here. It's the biggest concern that I had when I was writing this sermon was the fact that I know that people have a tendency to stop listening once they hear something they disagree with. And so you miss the full context or the full explanation, you just hang on to that one point you don't agree with. Funny example I had at that, my previous church. I referenced something that Dostoevsky wrote in his novel, The, uh, the Brothers Karamazov. And he was talking about progressives and conservatives. And I made clear when I referenced this book written in 1879 was not talking about Democrats and Republicans. Guess who got a long email later that afternoon talking about the evils of one of these political parties? No reference in this long email was there anything about the 25 minutes I'd spent talking about Jesus. Instead, just the dangers of one of these parties. Again, of which I had said when I started it, his term progressive and conservative had nothing to do with politics in that book. 
Now, if you've tuned out this mess, well, if you tuned out because it's boring, I understand that part. But if you've tuned this out because all the church ever does is ask for money, friends, I would warn you, you are missing out on the beauty of what Paul is teaching us here if you just assume this is all about money and I don't need to hear this. There is so much more to this message than this. As we go on, Paul talks about this then in verses 10 to 12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service, not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is about your life and giving it over to God. Lord, how can my life best serve you? This isn't just your money, it is your time and your talents too. Oh, and by the way, and I just hit on the other thing, even less we want to part with than money, is time. Nobody's got time at all, right? Until you hear this, I came across this quote last week. This one hurts, by the way. Don't say you don't have enough time. You have exactly the same number of hours per day that were given to Helen Keller, Pasteur, Michelangelo, Mother Teresa, Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Jefferson, and Albert Einstein. It's not about time, friends. It's about priorities. This isn't to call out anybody's priorities here. It's to simply say, if you are unsatisfied with your life, it's because your actions are not matching your values. Paul has been telling you this whole time, you are created for a purpose. It's either that or it's this other message which says a bazillion years ago you had some magic stardust which combined with some other magic gases and that formed you. But if that's the case, then honestly you're nothing but random happenstance which means you might as well consume because you're going to die. Or you can realize you were fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator, intentionally made by a creator, which means then that he has a purpose for you to fulfill the calling for which he created you. Well, how? How do I fulfill it? You got to do. Because he's given you everything you need to go and do it. All of your talents, all of your abilities, everything you have has been supplied to you by God for the purpose in which he created you. When you start living that out, life will take on an entirely new meaning because you are now living for that purpose in which you were created. It's funny because people hear that, right? And you're like, oh, this means he wants me to get into ministry. No, it does not mean you need to go work for a church. I don't want most of you working here because you'd be awesome pastors and they'd fire me, okay? It's a huge misconception to think that a life-serving God is working in ministry. First off, just because you work in a church actually doesn't even mean you're working in ministry. And I say this only because he is the pinnacle example of what it means to actually serve in ministry. But think if it was the opposite. Think about if Pastor Kirk just did a nine to five, Monday through Friday, he finished off the checklist of the things that he wanted to do, and then when he's done, he's done after 40 hours a week. Does that sound like ministry to you? Or does that sound like him just doing a job? It sounds more like a job than anything else. You see, working at a church does not make you a faithful follower of Christ, does not make you a faithful follower of God's calling any more than does someone who feels called to go work at a corporate job. It's about following God's calling in your life. 
You see, what makes you a faithful follower of God's calling is what you do with the time and the talents that he has given you to bless and serve the people that he has put in your path. If you recall that essential verse going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, hear how it plays out. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How God has created these works for you to do beforehand even. Is it starting to add up now how purposeful and intentional your life is? It's time, friends, to start finding and living out that purpose for your life. Not just because you have to. Again, that's the reluctant person. It's because you want to because of God and his inexpressible gifts. All that he's done for you in Jesus, that great grace that he's given you. On top of that, then equipping you to do all these works. You ever stopped and tried to explore all that God has equipped you with? That's purpose. That's a fulfilled life right there. To do what you were created to do. But it always leads to that tough question again, how? Pastor, how do I do this? Because it's easy for me to stand up here and say, go do the Lord's work and act all self-righteous and smug about it when you've got to go home to your mortgage and your bills and your responsibilities and all of those other things. Again, this isn't about your career. This is not about how you make money or anything to do with that. It's about how you spend your time. If God has created you for a purpose, and if he has planned out how you fulfill the purpose in which he has created for you, long before he even created you, before, God, before you even were formed, God had all this planned for you then you have to trust the fact that another thing that he has created for you are the paths for you to follow in life. I always heard this great expression one time. It said, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is being prepared for an opportunity when it presents itself. Well, God never lays any opportunities out. Are you seeing them? If you are prepared and desiring to walk in them, you'll see these paths that he has led for you. And again, none of what I'm talking about here describes abiding Savior. You don't have to use your time and talents and gifts at abiding. That's not what this is about. This is just one area of service which you can do. There's so many wonderful faces I see around here where you are giving so much of your time and talents here at church, but this isn't about that. Because as a matter of fact, really the call and the role of the church is what Scripture says is to equip the saints for every good work. Meaning really why you guys come on Sunday should be worshiping the very God that you then have gone out and served all week long. This is a chance for you to come and refresh and recharge and say, God, thank you for being so good. Now it's time to go and let the work begin for a week. And the problem is with a sermon like this, there's always that question, well, what am I supposed to be doing? And I don't have an answer for you. It is probably the number one question pastors get asked, what am I supposed to be doing? The two-part answer I would give you for this, and it's not going to be satisfactory, but the first one is simply to evaluate what are you currently doing? Where is it getting you? 
And I'm not saying that in a bad way as if it's a wrong direction, but I'm saying if you're gonna keep following the same path and expecting different results, again, we know the definition of that. Lord, how can I serve you while staying the same course? And if you're feeling unfulfilled, then try to start trying something different, which is the second part. Find something different. Because you know what? A rewarding and fulfilling life is not found in endless busyness. That's how we numb ourselves to the unfulfillment of life. A rewarding, fulfilling life is found in what God has equipped and prepared you to do. And the more you do it, the more opportunities present themselves, and the more opportunities that present themselves, guess what? The more gifts you'll find yourself tapping into. Because remember, friends, you already have everything you need because it all starts with God's grace. So what are you going to do with that grace? I want to leave you with this quote today from Tolstoy in his book, Anna Karenina. This gets rid of that misconception that we have about eternity. He says, The eternal error men make by imagining that happiness consists in the gratification of their wishes. Eternal satisfaction is in seeking after the eternal and doing the things that God has prepared you to do and their eternal outcomes. Please join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to us. Not only with that abounding grace that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, but Heavenly Father, you have equipped us, given us all that we need to do the things for which you have created us. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, to give us the strength and the guidance and the direction to live that fulfilling life that you have prepared for us while we await this earth to be called into our eternal glory, of which we long all of our days. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.